You're listening to Golf Yeah, your masterclass in the lives, lessons, and aspirations of people who've built successful businesses and rewarding careers based on their love for the game of golf. Whether it's the obstacles they faced, the success they've achieved, or advice they offer, Golf Yeah provides the motivation and blueprint to convert your passion for golf into a full or part-time endeavor. Or maybe you just enjoy hearing stories from people who know a hell of a lot about the game. Either way, let's start exploring the business side of golf with your host, Gordon Andrew. Jeff Wallach is an award-winning journalist and the author of four books of nonfiction and nearly a thousand, or actually by this time it's more than, a thousand articles, essays, and reviews for dozens of national publications, including the New York Times, Sports Illustrated, Men's Journal, Money Magazine, Health, Men's Fitness, and many others, probably Playboy, if he was around when they were in publication. At any rate, Jeff, welcome to Golfia. Pleasure to be here. I have to start with an apology for our tens of thousands of listeners. Jeff sent me an email. I don't know if you have a publicist, but he sent me an email asking if I was interested in, in interviewing him. And I said, no. And I have to give you a reason why. First of all, I didn't know who you were. I should have known who you were, but you caught me at a period of time where I had been bombarded by requests from every idiot selling every piece of golf junk in the world, as well as people that had nothing to do with golf. And yours came in that batch, and I just was saying, no, 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 no. And thankfully, you were gracious enough to come back to me and say, hey, you idiot, I do have a very strong golf connection. And you were right. And I'm glad you did. Thank you. I don't think yeah. of myself as like every other idiot. I think of myself as a special idiot. So I'm glad you were paying attention. <laughs> okay. And then when I read your credentials and I read some of your stuff, I thought, oh, man, what a jerk. Well, so I that, apologize. That is uh, a good explanation of the plight of an author these days forced to do his own publicity and you know reach out to dozens of strangers, if not hundreds of strangers, and try to get some publicity for a book that he wrote. So actually, that's part of what I want to talk to you about, because I do want to talk about your books, but I don't want to replicate every other podcast that you've been on the way you talk about your books. I want to talk about your career as a journalist and as a novelist. And for people who might be aspiring to be either one or both of those, either having to do with golf or sports or any topic. But I want to start with a post that you put on LinkedIn earlier this week, because you had been over in Dublin, and talk about that in a second. And you mentioned that you had the uh, origins of a number of terms, including blind, drunk, dead ringer, and wake. So I was hoping that you could actually fill in the blank on those. Yes. Well, <laughs> let's see if I can recall the way this was described to me by a gentleman at the Irish Whiskey Museum. So blind, drunk... Let's come back to that one. <laughs> Should we go to the next one? I, don't know. A, a <laughs> I told you that one was coming. Blind spot on blind drunk. Okay, well, dead ringer. So the problem in the olden days was, and I've heard two different stories about this. One is they used to drink out of pewter mugs, particularly when they were drinking okay. beer. And pewter has lead in it. And if you drink out of a pewter mug often enough or long enough, it has a catatonic effect. In essence, it puts you in a coma. Does it give you sickle cell anemia? That might be a side effect. At any rate, <laughs> so what would happen is they would bury people. And then, you know, depending on where they buried them, like someone might hear some scratching on the ins from the inside. Oh, they thought it was dead. So okay. they took to 
putting a string in a hole into the coffin with a bell on the outside so that if the person woke up and they were in the coffin, they could ring the bell. So that was a, that was a dead ringer. So did they tie the rope to the string to his hands, his that or her hand? Make, that would make the most sense. Because I guess, you know, if you woke up in a coffin, you might not think to pull a string and <laughs> ring a bell. Or have a flash. And that is also where the term wake came from. Because after a while, you know, when this had gone on too many times and they buried a live person, they decided, well, why don't we just set him out on a table for a few days and we'll sit around and drink. And if he wakes, we'll know he wasn't actually dead. Oh, cool. Okay. So, have you seen the movie Waking Next Line? That's yeah. one of my favorite movies yeah. ever. And uh, the blind drunk part is also related to whiskey, but apparently I consumed too much while I was listening to the presentation and don't remember it. Okay. Okay. Well, maybe it had to do with the whiskey was lousy whiskey or rancid or something. And Oh, yes. Very, magical very good. No, that there was a time where when they were distilling, there are two different parts of alcohol, ethanol and alcohol. Ethanol will make you go blind. And it took them a while in determining how to distill whiskey, how to separate out the ethanol. So now when you see like the copper pot stills that whiskey makers use, what they're trying to right. do is boil off the ethanol so that you didn't go blind drunk. Thanks okay. for that. Because we have some bootleggers in our neighborhood. I always wonder what they were doing back there with those copper. Do they all have canes, you know, and seeing <laughs> eye dogs? Maybe. <laughs> At any rate, so you were in Dublin last week? Yes. Okay. I was there also, oh. and I was with Tom Coyne. He has this thing called the Coin Cup. I don't know if you consider him a, a compatriot or a competitor, but he runs this coin cup. He's done six of them where he takes a bunch of old guys over to either Scotland or Ireland. And he has this coin cut competition where it, it's, it's structured loosely after the Ryder Cup. And so it's just for fun. But anyway, I was on the bus with him and went back and forth from the hotels to the various courses. And I said, do you know Jeff Wallach? He said, of course I know Jeff Wallach. He's a He's a well-known journalist and novelist. I said, well, stupid me. I should, I should have known that. He said, don't tell him I was in London because he had a book signing or a reading and I was invited and I didn't go. Now, I wasn't supposed to tell you, but I will. His defense is this and it's honest. He brought his whole family over on this trip. He had his parents who were in their 80s. He had his wife's parents. He had his two girls and a whole bunch of cousins. So any free time that he did have was already booked in advance. So that's the plausible excuse. And, and what compensation did you receive to tell me that? No, he, he said, don't mention I was here. No, he said, just I, saw, I saw his posts while I was there and I reached <laughs> out to him. And I think you were like a day behind me everywhere you went. Because I saw like you played at the Island Club, right? We did. I was at we the did. Island Club. I think you played Royal oh. Dublin. We did. I was at Royal Dublin. So you may well have found a few of my golf balls in the Maryland. The other way around, trust me. Um, trust but me. anyway, no, Tom is a great writer, and I would consider him a compatriot and a competitor for sure. Okay. Yes. And speaking of lost golf balls, I bought two dozen Kirkland balls from Costco because I had heard that they play like, you know, Titleist Pro V1s and – and are half the price. I bought a bunch of them, and I left a bunch of them over there. And, and I was envisioning these Irish guys picking them up, saying, "Oh, what's a Kirkland ball? I've never heard of that before." <laughs> anyway, they're from me. I may uh, have actually found one of yours. 
<laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I figured I knew I was going to lose a lot in the gorse and all that other shit they have over there. Yeah, so, I, I would say my, I, my greatest accomplishment for the week was I played one of the courses. It wasn't the island. I think it was Royal Dublin with the same golf ball for 18 holes. Wow. But, you know, Royal Dublin was very playable, uh, rough. It was kind of wispy yeah. grass. You could find your ball and you could hit out of it. Some of the other courses we played, like Port Marnock, and then we played the, like uh, the European Club, which is, it was like full of these spike bushes that if you went, you were going to like lose a yeah. limb and you would never yeah. reach in to get it. <laughs> that wasn't by accident. Anyway, let's get to the interview. So now that I've apologized for me and for Tom Coyne, I'd like to start with backstories because I've never heard you talk about, you know, where you grew up, your family, your schooling, what made you want to become a writer? Was it a purposeful or did you have no other job prospects? Well, I mean, I've certainly proven myself unhirable, but that came later. You know, I started out pretty early on, probably around the seventh grade. I had a teacher who, you know, I'm sure she regretted it later, but she was very encouraging when I was writing some short stories. And so from there, you know, in high school, I worked on the literary magazine. In college, I studied English. Then I went to the least practical graduate program ever designed, which was a, a master's in creative writing. And I was setting out to be a fiction writer and then got out of that program after two years with no marketable skills of any kind. And so I took a 35-year detour and became a journalist because I still wanted to make my living writing and fiction writing did not seem like the best ticket at that time or at any other time for that matter. You know, so I became a journalist uh, out of self-defense and that was a phenomenal career. I mean, I was in it at a time where, you know, there were actual magazines printed on paper with ink. And you know, isn't the thing we have video because I could see you do the, the air quotes? Yeah. <laughs> I would hate to miss that. And, you know, this was so in those days, as I'm sure you know, there were gatekeepers, aka editors. And unless you had, you know, some skills or some expertise or some other background recommending you, you couldn't publish because. If you were a knucklehead and didn't know how to spell or you were a crazy person, editors were there to screen the rest of the world from whatever you were trying to tell them. And now in the Internet era, anybody with a laptop living in their parents' basement with a fish tank is a journalist because there are no gatekeepers. There are no barriers to entry anymore. Anyone can publish anything at any time. And what that's done to people like me is it's cheapened the content that I produce, which, you know, I've spent a lifetime learning how to do hopefully well. And I have credentials and I, I research my subjects and check my facts, things that are no longer required to be published. So I've hit a raw nerve there. Yes. <laughs> You're up on your soapbox. But I want to go back because you went way too okay. fast on your life story. So where did you grow up? What did your parents do? Did you have brothers and sisters? Yeah. Um, so I grew up on Long Island in, outside of Manhattan in New York. What town? Uh, it was called the Five Towns. Mine was North Woodmere. Okay. You know, sort of a middle class to affluent Jewish suburb of New York where most of the parents took the train into the city for white-collar jobs. My family business was the jewelry business. 
which my wow. grandfather started on the Bowery, New York's Lower East Side, in 1910. My wow. father and his brother took that over. My brother is now the third generation. I got as far away from it as I possibly could. Okay. It's up at the 40s now, right? They moved up from the Bowery. Yeah. Or the 50s? What? Yeah. In yeah. The 50s. Off yeah. Fifth Avenue, the Jewelry District, 47th Street, mostly. Okay. So you had one brother? I have one brother, yeah. Okay. So you're in seventh grade. Where'd you go to high school? I went to George W. Hewlett High School. Okay. Was that the kids mostly college bound there? Yes, That's very much so. Probably okay. Okay. upwards of 80 or 90%. Okay. And you went to Brown? I did my graduate work at Brown. I did my undergrad four years at Vassar College. Oh, at Vassar. Yeah. Okay. Had they just turned co-ed? Wasn't the male to female ratio like 90 to 10 or something? Or the female to Let's male? Let's just say it was good. Did that factor in your selection decision? Uh, I don't think it factored into my decision, but I sure was happy about it when I got there. Okay. Yeah. You don't want to tell any stories well, about I mean, that, do you? You know, <laughs> I just went back to my 40th reunion, and some of us were reflecting on the fact that, for one thing, most of us could not get into the college today. You know, or afford requirements, Or afford to. But the requirements are so... High. And one of the factors that got some of us in at the time was they were starting their first men's sports teams. And I played soccer in high school and they were starting a soccer team. And so, I mean, that's not what got me in, but I think it probably helped. They were looking for men who played sports. Okay. And I happened to be one at the right time. No co-ed wrestling or anything like that? Not officially. <laughs> that's, a, okay. that's a whole different question. Okay. So then did you go to Brown right after you left, I graduated? I did. That was a master's degree in, in writing? Fiction writing. Yes. I think Tom Coyne did the same thing at Notre Dame, didn't he? No, I didn't know that. He did. And the, actually, the book he wrote as part of his master's thesis was, I forget the title of it, was made into a movie with Gary Sinise. Really? You didn't get no. that? Now Tom <laughs> is more of a competitor than a compatriot. That was pretty uh, heady stuff right out of graduate school for him. Yeah. I, so, I don't want to feel like a failure. I just no, I, you know, I've had that. a pretty good run myself. But I will say, you know, the, the odds of something like that happening are astronomical. So good for him. And I admire anybody yeah. who's got, you know, first of all, someone who creates has my admiration from the beginning, whether it's a yeah. podcast or a novel or, you know, you're making ashtrays. I mean, it doesn't matter. Or license plates for that matter. You know, just the whole idea that there's very little promise of remuneration in the creative arts. So anybody who does it at all, even without being rewarded, has my respect. But somebody who's successful, I mean, that's really an accomplishment. Yeah. So you leave Brown. You really have no portfolio of printed works. How do you get your first assignment? And that's a question that I'm asking it for because it still applies today. How does somebody with no experience join the big? Yeah, and I love to know. tell this story because not long after Brown, I moved to Portland, Oregon, where I live now, and I was trying to start a freelance career. And so in Portland at the time, there were basically you know four or five outlets that you could write for. I contacted all of them to try to get you know even the smallest assignments. And we had a free paper at the time that was very sort of business oriented that you could pick up in a box on the streets of downtown where in the business district. And I pitched a couple of stories to this magazine 
I got a call back from the editor and she said, we're looking for somebody to write a column about office life. Now, the one thing I knew, even at that age, at about 23, was I was not headed to work in an office. I'm incompatible. I don't like people. I don't get along with others. You know, all the reasons not to. But she offered me $25 a week, which, you know, this was my first paying gig. And I'm like, I'm in. So essentially, my first job as a journalist was actually as a fiction writer. (laughs) Every week, I made up a story about something that happened in the office that I didn't work in. Did you talk to people as sources that did work in offices? Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes I just wrote about my own experience even though I hadn't actually had it. Okay. So how did you make the transition from office fiction to bona fide journalism? Yeah. So, I mean, I did, a, I had some inroads with the other papers in Portland, you know, we had the Oregonian here, which is the state paper of record. And it probably had, right. I don't know, half a million or a million subscribers back then. But as a freelancer, there were very few opportunities. And so I headed back to New York and spent five years in Manhattan. I started writing very, very short pieces for some pretty big magazines. You know, they have what in those days they called the front of the book section, where there'd be roundups of, you know, new spas or restaurants. Or, you know, I did work for like Popular Science magazine. And every month they had a section about like six new inventions. You know, and this this could be crazy stuff. But the stories were 100 words or 200 words, and that's how you start to build a career. And after you have 20 or 30 clips of these types of stories, now you go back to your editors and say, okay, well, these worked out well. You're still hiring me. You know, how about a 500-word feature? And then you'd go to other magazines and say, hey, I've got all these clips. Let me do a 200-word piece for you. And, you know, you just kind of build the blocks piece by piece until it turned into a career where, you know, luckily, at the height of my career, I mean, I was writing 2,500, 3,000 word feature stories for some very big, very good magazines. Yeah. Were you pitching your own story topics to editors? Yes. That's the they- thing people don't understand about freelancing is, I mean, the fact that you're a good writer is, you know, the baseline requirement. But what an editor yeah. really wants from a freelancer is you need to bring them ideas that nobody else has brought them. And so that's your real value. So essentially, being a freelance journalist is a sales job. And in my case, I sold about, I would say, an average of one story a week for three and a half decades. I mean, that was the goal, to sell 50 stories a year, one a week. That was your goal. That was my goal. Your personal To really make a living at it. Yeah. You probably had a lot of ideas that you thought were great that an editor spit on for any reason, stupid or otherwise, you know. How did you deal with that? Did you just take it to another book? Yeah, you know, you change the idea. I mean, the goal here was do as little work up front as you could to sell the story. You know, you do a little bit of research because you need to sound like an expert in whatever it is you're planning to become an expert in to write the story. But you want the editor to think you already know everything about it. So you do your research. And I would send, you know, an average pitch letter for me, I'd send somewhere between three and five ideas to an editor with the idea that if he took one, that was a pretty good track record. And so you were, you know, you're just constantly walking down the street. You'd see somebody do something. You'd be like, I know I could write a story about that for this magazine. You know, I had a wide range of, I mean, I did everything from 
I wrote for Seventeen magazine. I wrote for Popular Science, Sports Illustrated, a bunch of golf magazines, uh, Men's Fitness. You know, just like whenever I saw an idea, I tried to figure out what publication might be interested in this. Yeah, I have a sign on my desk. We're actually in similar businesses because I'm always getting my nose bruised. And but I have a sign on my desk that I've had for years. It says, "He who rides the tiger cannot get off." And it sounds like you were on that kind of same trip in that. You were responsible for your own success or lack of success. Yeah, absolutely. And you couldn't stop. But I think, you know, not to take that metaphor too far, but basically now the tiger is dead and there's no more right. I think so. Uh, you, you think so? As I knew it, yes. When, during that period in your life, what was going on writing technology-wise? Was the internet around or were you typing on carbon paper and typewriter and whiteout? You know? Yeah, I mean, that's where I started for sure. I mean, an electric typewriter was the cutting edge technology, right? And then yeah. I think I had my first computer, not my own, but wrote on a computer in graduate school at Brown. They had a system and, you know, we had to compete for computer time. And the people in the writing program were not really high priorities. So we would end up with slots at 11, 12, 1 in the morning you know, where you could get three hours of computer time. Yeah. That was fine. And then, you know, we got, I got my first personal computer, I don't know, in maybe 1985, 1986, an Apple IIe computer. The Mac had just yeah. come out and I was like, that's not going to catch on. Mine was a Tandy Radio Shack, a Trash 80, you know, and they'd send me patches every week that I didn't know how to install. Right. You know? right. <laughs> anyway, it's a dark age. Um, so, you know, we were but, very lucky. Like the notion that anybody could have ever written a novel without the internet is astounding to me when I see how much I rely on it for information, for fact-checking, just for the physical part of writing. And that was all great, but then the internet came along and ruined everything. Okay. What's the word for, was it troglodyte? What's the name for people that are hate technology? Yeah, that would be a good one. But when you were pitching stories, Jeff, did you, because there was no email, right? There's no internet. Did you have to mail a physical letter, actually knock on a door to pitch your stories? At the beginning, yes, letters, query letters, which were actual letters. I mean, that seems so long ago, I can hardly remember it. And then obviously, once you had a, a personal computer, you know, all these magazines were wired up. And so you started to send email. And that was, you know, that saved a lot of time and money, right? Yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of aspects of the internet that, you know, were obviously helpful. I'm facetious somewhat, but I mean, it did ruin freelance magazine work for a lot of people. So I'm only partly bitter. Well, are you seeing that you paint a pretty pessimistic picture for somebody who's an aspiring journalist? How do they survive today? I mean, you you made a living, right? I mean, yeah. And I got out of this mostly about six years ago because it was becoming too hard to make a living. So two things happened. One, maybe at the height of my career, a magazine paid me $4 a word for a story. So if you wrote... Do the math for me. <laughs> do, what, give, do the math. What's the total? So if you wrote a 2,000-word story, you know, you might have gotten seven or eight thousand. $800,000. That's $800,000, right? <laughs> 800000 yeah. See, you would have been my kind of editor. You could have sent me the check <laughs> and we all would have <laughs> I interrupted you. Is it $800 or $8,000? It would have been $8,000 for a 2,000-word story. Okay. That, 
All right, that's pretty decent. Maybe it would take a couple weeks to write. And maybe there would be a trip involved and some expenses. So it's not a path to wealth. Let me just put it that way. But by the end of my career, so one effect of the internet was people had a shorter attention span. So the stories were no longer 2,000 words. They were 600 words. And the pay was no longer $4 a word. It was 50 cents a word. And there were so many people competing for this work that it became impossible to make a living at it. And so, you know, my advice to people who are going into this field would be you need to hitch your wagon to a publication and probably have a staff job as opposed to trying to make a go as a freelancer. Now, this whole new field of influencing, you know, is attracting a lot of people. I mean, if you thought I was on a rant about publishing, we should probably not talk about influencers at all. But that is not really journalism. That's, you know, taking a photo of yourself in a lot of different settings. So one alternative to success in journalism these days is either marry a rich, have a rich spouse or a spouse with a a nice income. Or as I see from your resume, it says Wallach has also worked as a real estate developer in Portland, Oregon, buying, renovating, and managing a portfolio worth over $15.15 million. Talk that about is that. true. Let's be clear, though, that I manage it, so I own some of it. But of that $15 million, you know, it's not like I got rich personally doing this and I'm, you know, a land bat. I mean, what happened was when I met my wife, I was 39 or 40 years old. And I had just bought a house, which I had always thought would be completely out of my reach, you know, given that I worked as a freelance journalist. And I had some corporate gigs and, you know, writing for other places that paid me a little bit of money. And I bought this house and I was like, wow, you know, this is a mark of success, something I never thought I'd do. Then I met my wife. We decided to get married. She had had also just bought a house. Hers was better than mine. By better, I mean, she had a duplex that she was sharing with a business partner. And so for two people who both worked at home, this duplex made sense. We could put our offices on one floor and live on the other floor. So we decided we would live in her house, not mine. And I thought, well, I'm so proud that I was able to buy this house. I'm emotionally attached to it. I wonder, could I rent it out and be a landlord? And so I bought a bunch of books about managing real estate. And I did all the stuff you're supposed to do and went to classes and talked to people at the city. And I rented out my house and I was making $100 a month. Like, I thought, this is the greatest thing ever. They're paying my mortgage and I get $100 a month. So my wife and I had a little bit of cash. We bought a second rental house. Now we were making $200 a month. Like, we're like zillionaires. Um, But we were out of money. But this was back in around 2003 in Portland, Oregon, when if you went to a party, all anybody talked about was real estate. I mean, it was booming. And so we had a lot of friends who had made better career choices, like they were doctors and lawyers or had actual jobs where they got a check every every week. So I pitched a, a business proposal to a bunch of my friends that if they all threw some money into a pot, I would buy something. I would oversee the renovation of it. I would manage it as a long-term rental. And I convinced uh, some friends to do this. And then that was very successful. And so I did more and more of it until 
I built, you know, over 20 years, a pretty big portfolio. That's cool. So really your basic skill, you're a salesman. I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. I, I prefer that to salesman. Salesman makes it sound like I'm going to knock on your door with a vacuum cleaner. Okay. If you want to denigrate the sales profession, but I, I hear you. So you probably ran in the same problem I did when I go to a banker and you're in business for yourself and they say, oh, so you don't have any steady source of income, do you? You know, they look at you like a deadbeat. And I always want to say to them, hey, buddy, you know what? You're like a phone call away from having your boss call you and saying, we don't need you anymore. And what are you going to do? I said, at least I know how to go get more work. That's right. You probably don't. They don't want to hear that because they won't give you the mortgage if you say that to them. Well, I mean, you know, I got into this business at a time when, you know, if you had five bucks in your wallet and you showed it to a mortgage broker, you could get a loan. They had something for you. I mean, this was before the crash. I mean, partly it was responsible for the crash because a lot of people bought things they couldn't afford. But if you were buying things that made more money than they cost and you were doing it with borrowed money, that was a pretty good formula for success. Yeah. So is your general advice, if you're an aspiring journalist in this day and age, to try to find some second source of income to kind of keep you afloat while you're... I think if you were a journalist, then you're probably getting a paycheck. If you were a poet or a playwright or a fiction writer, (laughs) I would say you're probably going to need to do something else. Yeah. Okay. Before we leave your journalism career and move on to your novelist career, you went on a lot of interesting assignments. From what I've read in this book and other places, you did a lot of interesting things on writing assignments, right? And you played a lot of golf in interesting courses. Yeah. I was very, very lucky in my career that, you know, for me, money was not the goal. The goal was to live a varied and interesting life. And as a freelancer, I mean, I really had that opportunity. You know, I got sent all over the world on different types of assignments. I mean, I interviewed athletes and Nobel Prize winning scientists and writers that I admired. And uh, so since money wasn't the object, that was my reward. I, I got to do a lot of stuff that people would love to do. Yeah. Did you get to rub shoulders with any well-known golfers during that? I did. Um, you know, for me, golf is more interesting as from the participatory or the travel side than it is from the tour side. So, I mean, I've met a lot of the you know famous players and architects over the years, and I'm always happy to be in their company. They're interesting people generally. But that wasn't the part of the game that I focused on. Okay. Talk a little bit about your golfing career. When when did you start to play? And Yeah, I must have started 10 or 12 years old. That was my dad's thing. The, one of the few things we had in common, which I think is true for a lot of men. So that was a way for us to connect. So I grew up playing when I was a kid. You know, we'd go to uh, someone's mother would drop us off at the Muni. And like eight hours later, someone else's mother would come pick us up and we'd just keep going around and around and playing as many holes as we could. And then when I was at Vassar, we had a golf course on the campus, a nine-hole course that you got to play as many holes as you could for 50 cents. So I had a group of friends and we'd go out in the morning before class and play as many as we could. And and then we'd go through our day, and at the end of the day, we'd go back out and you know play some more holes. So okay. I mean, I've always lo- I've always loved the sport, and then I was lucky enough to you know kind of make part of my career in it. Yeah, this book, which I have read most of, 
when I sent my apology letter for rejecting you the first time as a guest, I was just really impressed with you as a writer. But I was also intrigued with your connection with Zen. And, and you know, I think of Caddyshack, you know, I think of Zen golf, but you treat it really seriously. I mean, you've made a case for the connection between Zen living and, and the game of golf. I was going to read a, pa- a passage just to give an example of what I thought was, you know, representative of that point of view. But maybe you could just, I mean, have you changed, this book was written, what, 15 years ago? No, more than that. 1996. Oh, 95, 96. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 20, 25 years ago, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Does this continue to sell? Yeah. Is it still in the show? In a very small way. Okay. I've almost earned back the advance that they paid me in 1996. Okay. I wanted to talk about that in a minute about advances and stuff on novels, but can you talk a little bit about this? Because some of it I got and connected. Some of it was I'm not smart enough to understand <laughs> Understand in terms of... Well, so the thing about the book is that Zen is a way of seeing the world and any activity that you pursue could be a vehicle for understanding the world in that way. So, you know, I mean, the ancient Zen monks, one of the things they did was archery, right? or martial arts, or flower arranging. And all of these things Mm -hmm. were a vehicle to teach this underlying philosophy. And so for me, it just happened to be golf. It could have been something else if I was, I don't know what, you know, a Gaelic football player. Maybe that would have been the sport that I pursued to understand some of this stuff. But golf, in particular, because it's a solitary sport, there's nobody defending you, so it's just you and the action lends itself to some of this inward exploration and application to the world outside you. Were you into Zen and, and Zen thinking before you started writing? I mean, where's the connection with yeah, golf? How did that I, I read a lot about it. I, I wasn't a student per se in terms of working with a master, but I read a lot of books about it. And I was intrigued by this idea that some sort of higher level of consciousness could be achieved through an activity. And for me, golf seemed like it lent itself to that more than most other activities. Yeah. Does it still influence your life and your thinking or have you kind of left that behind you? That's a good question. I think I'm still open to the possibilities of, you know, these moments of clarity, these moments where things connect in a way that maybe the Zen masters were getting at was enlightenment. Um, So I think I'm still interested in that happening. And how do you make that happen more often? You know, we all have those moments, but the idea would be how can we live in moments like that more often? Yeah. Before I leave this book, Jeff, I have to ask you a question about one thing that you mentioned. You said you had a friend. You said one of my closest friends, I can't mention his name because his wife would kill me if she knew this, has been conducting a small experiment with their baby. The The results probably won't be conclusive for another five or 10 years, but sometimes you have to be patient in the name of science. Now, some time has elapsed. So you say it's a very simple experiment. The baby has just entered the stage where he eats a lot of fruit. That means a lot of diapers, cleanage. You didn't write that. I put that in there. He's absolutely captivated by fruit. And when my friend is in charge of feeding, every time he gives a baby half of a peeled grape, he whispers apple. So do you know the outcome of that? Mind Screw no, but that, but that baby is like 25 years old now. So I'm going to check back. Yeah. So maybe that'll be a reason for you to have me on another show next year. Maybe. Yeah. You never followed through on really followed up. No. I suspect my friend may have given in to pressure and 
you know, come to think that caught. wasn't a great idea, but I don't know that for a fact. Okay, he got caught. The other thing that I thought was funny, because it reminded me of something that happened to me, you're talking about, you really, you were at the uh, Innisbrook Golf Institute in Florida, and it didn't seem like you were taking your lessons seriously, or at least you're being very casual about it, which is not acceptable behavior. And I have to tell you a story, a friend of mine who's no longer with us, he went down to Davis Love, Davis Love III's father, uh, who I call Davis Love the Turd. But at any rate, his father, who died in a plane crash, had a golf school in Florida. So he had a long line, about 20 guys. He would go to each one of them, you know, give them some direction and then walk away, maybe not come back for a half hour or so. And he went up to my friend and he gave him some instruction like, tuck your arm in on your downswing, tuck your arm in. So, and then he went away and then he, he came back. And you have to understand my friend was a pediatric dentist. He was a very gentle person and never used foul language. So anyway, so Davis Love comes up to him and starts screaming at him and saying, I told you to tuck your arm and I told you to tuck your arm. And my friend turns to him and he goes, Mr. Love, with all respect, he said, um, if I could fix my swing in 20 minutes, I wouldn't be at your fucking golf school. <laughs> and he said, Davis Love walked away and never came back. He sent his, one of his flunkies to fix his yeah. swing. <laughs> at any rate. Well, that um, I, I did, is a whole other subject. <laughs> yes, it is. And I have a lesson because I played so poorly in Ireland this past week. I have a lesson scheduled for, for, for Saturday because I, I was booking everything. At any rate, I recommend reading this book very strongly. It's it's a great read. It has a lot of um, funny and interesting stories in it and a lot of insights. And if you're interested in Zen, good book to read. So just a couple other questions. I'm cheating. I'm looking at my list here. Were you able, when you were a journalist, were you able to handle multiple assignments or could you only take one or oh, one? No, at a time? I mean it was always multiple assignments. Yeah, okay. you know, you were working on four or five different things. You were pitching three stories and responding to editors on another one and writing one, and then you were on a trip doing the research. So yeah, they always overlap. Okay, it's not the glamorous life that people think, right? Well, Being a freelance, it you know. is and it is. Um, I mean, but you know, my friends have this idea that I just, you know, for the last. 30 years have been flying around the world playing golf, right? And like somebody picks up my dinner check and somebody drives me to the airport. And yes, all of that is true. But remember that at the end of the day, you know, most of my career, I made $35,000 a year and worked seven days a week and nights and, you know, put in a lot of hours that were not the hours I was on these trips enjoying myself. So, I'm not complaining. Yeah. I'm just saying it looks better from the outside than yeah. it sometimes does from the inside. Yeah. So tell your friends to yeah. shut up, you know, walk a mile in my shoes, right? right? <laughs> so I, I keep threatening to leave this topic, but when you were overdoing your golf coverage, is there any course that stuck out or that you remember or considered to be the best course you played or one that you recommend to people that say, hey, I'm going to Ireland, oh, what, yeah. what course? Or yeah. Well, in fact, I mean, I'm just finishing up a magazine story about the trip. And my number one piece of advice to people is do not miss the courses that you've never heard of. Because, yeah. I mean, I've played a lot of the trophy courses and I'm very happy to have been at Bally Bunyan and La Hinch and, and Waterville. I mean, they're awesome and they're all that you've heard and read about. But some of my best experiences have been places like we just played a course called Northwest Links which I had never heard of, a small club in the middle of the country. We did not see any other Americans there. It was all locals. Good. You know, you went to the bar afterwards and it was not full of like 
guys with their hats pulled down going over their scorecards. You know, it was local people drinking at Guinness and laughing. And and so I think if you go on one of these trips that only covers the trophy courses, you miss part of the point of the trip, which is to see what's golf like in another country for the people who live here. And, and one of the things that's so remarkable is that even the smallest towns will have some beautiful links course that costs the locals, you know, 500 euro to join for the year. And the game is accessible to everyone and kids play and old ladies play and men play. And it's a community sport. It's not the exclusive kind of private club thing that we've created here in the States. And so part of going over to someplace like Ireland is to see, wow, this is what the game could really be about, about connecting people of, you know, various backgrounds and incomes and, and everything else. Yeah. I also find that unless it's some kid, you know, who's still in high school, talking to the caddies, because a lot of the caddies are older guys, you know, you get a lot of great stories and you just ask some questions about their life. I think that's part of the, the fun of playing yeah, over the caddies there. are you know? I mean, they're kind of the Zen masters of golf. I mean, the yeah, wisdom exactly. that they have, but not just the wisdom that they have, but their their subtle way of expressing it is a lesson that, you know, carries a lot of weight in a lot of different ways. Yeah, they are sort of like the time I played at County Down and I was had the ball up against a six-foot-high bunker and I said, what should I do? And the caddy said, oh, just smash the shit out of it, laddie. That, that was pretty subtle. <laughs> At any rate. Okay, so you're not going to give us a favorite Well, I mean, this Northwest links that I played was, you know, kind of a quiet discovery. And then I played uh, Port Stewart up in the north okay. the second yep. time and that just blew me away. A lot of people don't go up north, you know. So let's talk about your transition to novelist. You'd mentioned that the economics of journalism were getting tougher, which was a factor. Were you just tired of the routine, the having to pitch and sell and pitch and sell? And um, I was tired of the routine, and I was. It had become so much more difficult for me to find enough work that yeah. I realized, you know. I couldn't make enough money at this anymore, and I couldn't really get enough assignments to keep myself busy. I had luckily created some wealth with my real estate, and I realized, you know what? I don't have to do this anymore. I'm going to give it up before it gives me up and go back to writing yeah. fiction, which is what I had hoped to do my whole life anyway. And so I basically okay. now have one journalism gig left which is a regular gig for a business traveler magazine. And other than that, I don't pitch anything. I'm not really interested in taking on assignments. I'm spending my time writing fiction, which is like my first love in writing. Okay. So you didn't do a cold turkey. You've, you kept taking some assignments or some yeah. select assignments while you... Yeah, but they got, they paid less and became harder to find. And, you know, I could see where this was headed. Yeah. So w w give me the chronology of which book did you write first? Was it the the Zen Lessons or Beyond the Pharaoh? Was this the first That was my ever? first book ever, yes. Okay. And this was in 1995. Yep. 1995. At this point in time, this was, in your mind, part of the transition? Or did you just do this? No, I mean, that was essentially a work of journalism. Yeah, because it is kind of a compendium of different stories. Yeah, most right? of the stuff is true. Is what? Most of it's true. Yeah, most of it's true. I won't tell you which parts are. <laughs> okay. Okay. But then what your next book was, which one? Mr. Wizard? 
Well, no, there were four more before Mr. Wizard. Really? Yes. But your bio says you've only written it's four books of nonfiction. Well, it was five books of nonfiction and then the two novels, so seven altogether. So I followed Beyond the Fairway with a book about a summer I spent working as a whitewater river guide in Idaho. That actually happened. That did actually right? happen. Yeah, I worked as a guide for about 15 years in the summers. Why did you tell me that when I asked you about your background? I want to ask you about that. <laughs> I forgot. I don't know. I mean, oh, I forgot. it seems okay. like a piece that doesn't fit with all the other pieces at any rate. But it may have been influence of your Zen outlook, right? Yeah, You're out there uh, so. and, on the river. And, and there are, there's a river trip in one of the novels. So, I mean, that experience did not go unmined. You know, you know, that's a big aside and that, would be a whole different conversation. So the second book was about a season working on the River of No Return in Idaho. What's that book called? Uh, it's called Be- What the River Says, okay. which is a, a line that was borrowed from a William Stafford poem. He was like the poet laureate of Oregon, and he wrote a poem called What the River Says, which everybody... States have poet laureates? I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, every state does? I don't know. New Jersey. New Jersey. Yeah. I'm not sure New Jersey knows what yeah, poetry is. Hearts to um, Okay. Is that book still for sale? Could I find that on Amazon? You could or? probably find a used oh, copy. Yeah, used it's copy. not public. That went out of print many, many years ago. Okay. So it's a collector's item. You could call it that. Right. Okay. So then what did you write? And then I wrote three more golf books. One was a club history, which is not available commercially. The Eugene Country Club here in Oregon had its 100-year anniversary in 1999. So I wrote a club history for them. And then I had two other collections. One was called Driven to Extremes. And the other was a sort of a Northwest golf guidebook that I did for a small publisher out of Seattle. Okay. You were paid for all that, right? Yeah. Not a lot, but yes. Okay. In this book, I learned more about golf balls than I ever wanted to know. This chapter in there, it's like goes on forever. It's like, it was interesting, but you lost me. I was, I was on a plane. I think I fell asleep. Yeah. Here's the one takeaway from that chapter. And it's funny that you mentioned that because this came up recently in a conversation. Someone said, you know, how many golf balls do you think they make every year? And I said, I could tell you how many they make. It's 4 billion. And that, that's okay. going to be, and I'm not exaggerating. You could look this up. They make 4 billion golf balls every year. So wouldn't you think that like everywhere you went, driving down the highway, you'd see piles of golf balls. You know, you go to the forest, you'd see golf. I mean, where are all these billions of golf balls? They're all like out in the grass somewhere where you and I lost them. I think they sent them to cruise ships and they hit them off the, oh, the yeah, rear that's... deck. And that's... Yeah, you mentioned that, didn't you? Because you, you had like the life of a golf ball. And where it yeah. went and some guy, I thought that was kind yeah. of cute. I, I, I enjoyed that. Anyway, I was kind of that like absolutely astounding. Is that all manufacturers combined? That's all manufacturers combined. I went to the, I'm trying to remember which factory I went to, in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Titleist. Titleist. At that time, they were making about a billion a year. And this was 20 something years ago. So I wonder how many balls Costco makes. I know I, I left a lot of them over yeah. there but anyway well those balls are probably being made by one of the other big manufacturers yeah and they're flawed or something and they, or no they're, they're just, they're just branded 
They're just branded for Costco. I interviewed the head of golfballs.com and he had started his business actually by selling used golf balls hmm. first and then transitioned to new golf balls. But do you ever buy used golf balls? If there's a kid with a bag of golf balls on a course that I'm playing and, you know, he's got a handwritten sign, I always buy them. Okay. But that's charity. You don't play. Yeah, no, I mean, I play whatever's in my bag. You know, I okay. used to get all my gear for free and now I don't. So I'm willing to play whatever comes my way. I want to ask more questions about novelists. Again, I don't want to keep you all, I, you all day. You know what? But... I've got another hour before I have to be anywhere. So you just keep firing questions. Oh. Okay. So I will tell you that if I find a ball in the woods or anywhere, I won't play it because I think it has bad mojo on it because somebody has hit it poorly for it to be there. And I, I, I'm afraid I might catch the disease. But so you're blaming the ball. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, think about it that's this way. Ball. You could rescue this ball that ended up with a bad partner. No, I'm not that mistreated it and hit it in the woods and you could be the golf ball's hero. Okay. Anyway. That's true. At any rate, so so now you're a novelist. The two series, uh, the the non the, the fiction books that you've written, Mister Wizard first, yeah. right, and then this follow up book. Everyone here is from somewhere else, but I have to read Mister Wizard first. You should to uh, everyone should read the book. So my question is: Did the idea come, were you in search of an idea to write a, a fiction book, or did the idea come to you and then you said, okay, that I'm going to write a fiction book about this. Yeah, that's And you can talk a little bit about what the concept is, because for those that haven't read it. That's a good question. So if I remember right, and my memory is not always entirely reliable, I was already working on something else, on a piece of fiction. And I was writing some short stories. And so I had a short story about two brothers who connected to each other through a card trick. And the name of the card trick is Mr. Wizard. And okay. as a short story writer, I mean, I had been working on this short story for probably 20 years. You know, not every day, but I'd work on it for a couple of weeks. I'd get it to a point where I thought it was good. I'd send it out to a magazine. You know, I often got nice responses when they were rejecting the story. People would say, I really like this or whatever. So I always kept working on the story. And then when I sort of retired from journalism, I thought, it's a really good story. I'm going to pick it up again. And so the card trick and the brothers are still there, but that's all that remains from the original story. And that turned into the novel. Okay. I've heard enough of your podcast that I kind of know the whole storyline, which is interesting. Do, do you want to... Yeah, I mean, I'll give you give a, quick, the, a quick explanation is that, so two brothers who uh, grow up with a single mom on Long Island and believe that Jewish father died in the Vietnam War. And then, you know, fast forward to one of the brothers is in his 50s. His mother has dementia. He's visiting her in the home where she is. And she offhandedly says to him, you know, you should be careful about your drinking, being half Irish. And he's like, what? <laughs> you know, and he thinks, is this dementia? Or is she accidentally revealing something? Or is she purposely giving him a clue. So he goes and has a DNA test done, and it turns out that, in fact, he's half Irish. So he calls his brother, and they talk about this and how their mother was always hiding things from them when they were growing up and using misdirection, which is key to the card trick Mr. Wizard that the book is named after. Okay. Anyway, the brother calls back the first brother a few weeks later, and he says, hey, uh, I got some interesting news. I took the test, too. 
and I'm half Jewish just like you are, but the other half is not Irish. And so now the brothers know, first of all, that whoever their mother told them was their father was either not their father or not who she said he was. And so okay. the rest of the book is sort of a DNA treasure hunt where the two brothers are trying to find out, you know, where they came from and what that means to them. Okay. How long did it take you to write that book? You know, I banged out the first draft in about six months and then spent about another year and a half revising it. That's what I'm going to ask you. How much time you spend writing versus rewriting? Yeah. Talk a little bit about your writing discipline. Um, I heard you say in another podcast that anybody can write a novel. They just don't have the, the discipline to sit down and, and get it out. I happen to think there's probably some talent involved, which you appear to have, but I mean, that was very generous of you to say that. There might be some talent and there might be some training, but it also depends on, on what your goal is, right? So if your goal is to publish and win awards and make money, that's one thing. If your goal is to write a novel because you want to write a novel, that's my idea that anyone could do it. I mean, I have a friend who I greatly admire who had a corporate job his whole life, and he just retired at you know 63 or 64. And he said, I'm going to write a novel. And you know, everyone I've ever met has told me, I've got a great novel in me. I'm just waiting for the time to write it. And my friend came back to me a year later with 100 pages. And he said, you know, I've been working on this for a whole year. And I mean, he had no training. He never wrote at his yeah. job. He had more of a technical job. But he sat down and he did the work. And I really admire that. And I admire the people who are, you know, toiling away at family histories. I mean, yeah. anybody can write a book. Whether it's going to be published and make money, I can't answer. But so when people come up to me after a reading or an event that I do and, and you know, they're like, oh, I have a great idea for a novel, you know, like as if here we are two novelists standing next to each other. Um, <laughs> I always say, oh, that's great. How many pages have you written? Oh, I, I haven't started it yet. Well, okay. yeah, right. <laughs> so, I mean, I love the idea of encouraging people who may not ever get published to write books because it's fun. It's a discipline. It's you know, the rewards are not the rewards that you think they are by seeing your book in a bookstore. The reward is in the process. Yeah. But you write books to make money as well, right? I mean, is the, or well, primarily, is Not anymore. I mean, these novels were not written to make money. They were written with the hope that they might make money, but that wasn't their goal. So you, I thought that the the process was you write a sample chapter and an outline, you send it to a publisher and say, any interest? And in, if they say yes, they give you an advance. It doesn't work like that. Would that would be a nonfiction book. Oh, that's just nonfiction. But a novel, an agent or an editor will want to know the whole thing is finished. And they'll want to, you know, they might ask to see 50 pages or 100 pages. But if they write back okay. and say they like that 100 pages, they're not going to wait two years. They assume the only reason you're contacting them is because the book's done. So you okay. write the novel without nobody, you know, when I finish the novel, then the real hard work began trying to find a publisher. Okay, so it's on spec. Totally, totally on, on spec. spec, and that's the only reason to ever do it. I mean, unless, I don't know, I'm sure there are exceptions of people who come out of great writing programs and they have the right contacts and, you know, someone reads a chapter and goes, we want to buy this. But, yeah, that would be pretty unusual. So you don't have an agent 
to shop your books, your book, your novels around? Once I don't. I mean, I've had four agents in my career. And so I assumed when I finished that I wouldn't have any problem getting another agent because I had an agent for every one of my nonfiction books. Mm -hmm. And the industry has changed so much that, you know, I mean, I've got credentials, right? I have a degree in writing for whatever that's worth. I've written for the New York Times. I made my living for 35 years as a writer. So even if I'm a lousy fiction writer, I would think if you were an agent, you would at least maybe be willing to take a look. I mean, I sent out something like 130 letters to agents, and I would say 100 of them never even responded. I mean, nothing, not even like a form letter like you used to get in the old days. Because my book's not a, it's never going to be a blockbuster. It's not going to sell 500,000 copies. It's a small literary novel that would have, you know, I mean, it's had a nice audience. It's done well for what it is. But since an agent makes their money by taking 15% of whatever you make, if you make $10,000 on a book, it's not worth the agent, you know, spending five hours reading it. So... When I got to the end of that process, I was considering self-publishing it. And I had a friend in my writing group who said, you know, there's a lot of small publishers who are looking for quality, what they call literary fiction. There's no money in it, but you'll probably find somebody who wants to publish the book. And that's what I did. I, after all of that, I sent it out to about 30 of these small presses. And I got three offers pretty quickly and then had to retract the submissions on all the other ones when I accepted one of those offers. So I might have had even more. But do you burn your bridge with those ones where you retract? No, I mean, they get it. They know you sent it to several places. You send them a letter and say, look, you know, I haven't heard from you. I took another offer. So please don't bother reading this. I think you know they appreciate that you're a professional and they don't like get to the point where it finally comes up in their pile. And then they read the whole thing. And then you've already sold the book somewhere else. So yeah. I'm always very careful with other people's time. Okay. So you get a publisher and then you have to promote the book yourself, right? I mean, the publisher might do some. Yeah. Some I mean, they stuff, did everything you know? that I expected them to do and that they said they were going to do. But yes, in this day and age, unless you're published by a very large publisher, you're out beating the streets, you know, doing everything you can to get reviews, podcasts, you know, people to write stories about you. So, I mean, I would say the last four or five months, this has been basically a full-time job for me. But push it, uh, promoting this. The, the, the the yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you consider that a compromise is not the right word, but I mean, you're an artist, really. And this is kind of workman's stuff, yeah, you know, and that's, um, not the book, but, but having to promote it. Do you feel, I don't know. Well, like it, it, I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it. But I think you know. You what know, I became a writer so that I wouldn't have to do all this other stuff, right? Right. But then you realize that if you don't promote it, nobody else will, and you know you'll sell fourteen copies to your friends and relatives, and nobody else will ever hear of it. So, I mean, I have sent out hundreds and hundreds of emails introducing myself, pitching a story about me, a review of the book. You know, and this becomes a very creative endeavor in its own way. And, you know, as someone who's been an entrepreneur my whole life, I mean, that part of it has some attraction. You know, you have to figure out, you know, who could I get to be interested? I've found, you know, I do a lot of presentations for genealogical societies. 
because the book is yeah. is based on oh, DNA yeah. testing. And that's become a great audience that they never would have found this book. But I found them and said, if you have a speaker series, I'd be happy to do a half hour Zoom call with your members and a Q&A. And these are the types of things you do. You know, I wrote to all the Jewish organizations I could find, all the Irish organizations I could find. I mean, anybody who might have a, a sort of special interest in part of the subject matter who would be a potential reader. And you try to get people to cover you on their radio show or I mean, I've done Zooms with book groups of eight people who agreed to read the book if I would come and, and talk to them. So that's what you do now as a writer, and you try to find the time to go back and write something else. But did you send it to Oprah? I did not send it to Oprah. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I did send it to a few celebrities, but the layers of protection around someone like that are yeah. so unbelievable. Like, I was trying to get the book in the hands of Bill Murray, because... Well, you have it's a connection golf. there. It's golf. It's you, Irish you know, brother. Hold, hold on a minute. I can be a facilitator here. You know that Tom Coyne is a close friends with Bill Murray and the Murray brothers. Did you know that? I, I he he know actually that. arranged a, a trip just for the last year, a golf trip just for the Murray family, including oh. Bill and his... Yeah, so call Tom. Say, hey, Tom, I want Bill to read my book. He'll do it. You know what? I'll do it for you because then you won't feel like you're groveling for a competitor. Here's what I did. Which I tried to find his agent. You can't even, you know, so I got his agent. He has no phone number. He has no phone number. So what I did was I know where he lives and I read some stories about him and I knew a couple of places that he went, like a bookstore that he goes to, a restaurant. And I just sent copies to all these places. Yep. I sent copies to all these places saying, would you just pass this along? And, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously I want something from him, but I'm not going to press him. I just wanted the opportunity for him to read it and see if he read it and thought that this was something worth pursuing, he would reach out to me and say, I'd like to pass it along to so-and-so who might want to make a movie out of it. Or, you know, yeah. a, a writer like me needs one lightning strike. And so you yeah. try to find that lightning strike. And for me, someone like him, and if he read it and he sent me a note and he said, this was fun, thanks for sending, you know, that would be all I expected. Or even if he didn't write a note, but somehow he got the book and he read it so that I knew that at least this opportunity had been opened. And, you know, maybe some, you know, I also tried to reach the uh, filmmaker Edward Burns who writes a lot about Long Island and his movies are all about Long Island. And he grew up in the town that I grew up in. You cannot reach these people. I mean, that's why I asked you about Oprah, because I I believe that the lightning strike is, can be a pivotal event in any kind of artist's life that somebody notorious or respected says, Hey, this is great. And then all the people in the world say, Hey, I'm going to see what he's talking about. I promise you, I, because Coy knows me a favor. I'm going to make him get in touch with, Bill Murray and which one do you want to read? Both the first ones? one, okay. Mr. Wisdom. Okay. Yeah. And okay. Coin kind of owes me a favor too, because I brought him in. Well, he didn't, I brought he didn't him come in to your reading first. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, you brought him in on a podcast? Yeah, that I was doing the podcast. I'm trying to remember which one it was. I think it was with Irish Tourism. Okay. Okay. And, you know, they're friends of mine and they've been very generous to me over the years. And I was going to do a reading for them. And I said, you know, 
I could bring another writer or two if you want. I said, I don't know Tom Coyne, but I'll reach out to him because I know he writes about Ireland a lot. So I brought him on this podcast. That's how we know each other. So, I mean, he doesn't really owe me a favor, but if he wanted to do something nice for me, he started. Well, you know what? He owes, he owes me two favors. Here's how I met Tom Coyne. I, bought his, I was in a wedding in upstate New York. I saw his a, a course called Scotland, and I bought it. And I happened to wear a kilt on occasion because my ancestry goes back there. And I look at the cover, and in Highland dress, you wear the hose, and you wear flashes, which are like little pieces of cloth, you know, in the little thing that holds up your sock. And I look at the cover and he has flashes on both sides of the leg, inside and outside. So he gets four flashes. So I wrote him an email. I said, Mr. Coyne, I don't know if you plan to sell this book in Scotland, but I will tell you that the people who look at the cover will be so upset they won't read the fucking book. <laughs> and so the artist changed it. I said, take the inside flashes off because I don't belong because oh, it was a kilt violation. So anyway, so he never thanked me for that. So he owes me for that. And I, I promised I will Put a gun to his so head. If you just ask him fight. to get it in, get the book in Bill's hands, and he doesn't have to do anything else, I won't follow up. And if Bill likes it, Bill will be Bill and do something. And if he doesn't like it or he doesn't read it, at least it got where it was going. So that's the kind of stuff that you do. You try to be clever and you try to put it in the right place, and you hope that one lightning strike takes this from a book that's sold maybe. I don't know, a thousand or twelve hundred copies to one that sells, you know, twelve no fifteen hundred. Exactly. That would be, you know, yeah, that'd be a twenty percent bump. That'd be huge. Okay. I promise to do okay. that for you. Here's my question. Does a writer go through like postpartum when he finishes a book, he or she finishes a book that they finished it and it's like, oh man, it's all over. What do I do now other than promote the well, books? It's like having a baby. It's more it's more like prepartum. Which okay. is to say, you know, so I probably wrote 12 or 15 drafts of these books. Those are full drafts. You know, they're 60,000, 65,000 words each. And I wrote each one of them probably 12 times. And I'm talking about Whoa. full rewrites. And by the time you get to the 10th or the 11th, now it's painful. You know, you've been over it. You've done 90% of the work, but to take it that next 10% to really get it finished is grueling. It's a grind. Yeah. And that's the hardest part. And then when you finish, I mean, the sense of relief and satisfaction is like nothing else I've ever done. I mean, when I found out it was going to be published, you know, that was like the greatest moment I, I can remember in a long time, other than getting married, just in case my wife is listening. I'm sure she's a big follower of golf. Yeah. yeah. Podcast. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So the challenge and the pain is, somewhere there towards the end where you know there's more work, but you've been through it so many times that you really, it's hard to push yourself that last mile. Okay. Now, writing your next book, okay, so you've got Mr. Wizard. How do you know, because you're out promoting that, how do you know it's time or do you start something in the back of your head, start saying, I better get going on creating something new? Well, I had a new book oh. that I was working on, that's something that I'd had in mind for a long time. And I was really... And I started working on that and it just was, it didn't take. And, you know, people had asked me, well, are we going to hear any more about the brothers? And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I've got, I don't think this story is finished. And so if I had been, let's say, a much younger writer, let's say I wrote this in my 20s and I wasn't in such a, you know, you get to be 60 and you're going to publish your first novel. It's like, you got to get going, right? You know, I mean, the day is getting short. 
So I reached a point where I felt like it was done. But if I had been younger, I might have said, this isn't really done. And, and so I, I suspect maybe the two books would have been one book and it would have taken four years to write. But I was eager to get something published. And so it seemed like a good stopping point. And I didn't know for a fact that there was going to be more. But when I wrote the sequel, I realized that a better or more experienced writer might have combined the two into one book. Okay. Did you kill off any of the brothers? Will there be a third book? I think there is going to be a third book, but I I need to wait for them to get a little older. Okay. Yeah. Can't you just make them older? I could. (laughs) It's not that they're living, you know. I want it to be more organic than that. I have an idea for a third one, which would be the last one, but I've got something else that I'm already working on that's completely unrelated. Okay. Do you know the demographics of the people who buy and read your book, these two books? Who would that be? The demographic would be people who know me. <laughs> no, that's not. That was kind of a serious question. Not yeah. entirely true. I mean, I would say it tends to be, you know, people our age, let's say people in their 50s. In their 40s. In their 40s. Yeah, yeah even 40s. I mean, there's people a lot of, uh, <laughs> well, you're, you look like a much younger man than I am. I'm older than you are. You? Uh, well, maybe you've got it. I took a lot of sex, drugs, and rock and roll in high school. So that You must have a good internet filter. I need to get one. <laughs> you know, I think there are so many cultural references in the book to things that happened in our lifetime growing up. You know, references to board games that we played that kids today might never have heard of. Or, you know, movies and music that was of a very specific time. So I think it tends to be people who are in my age group that read the book. Yeah. Do people read anymore? Is the total number of people who buy fiction going down as we die off? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I would assume the answer is yes. And anecdotally, like, you know, I did a reading back in June and someone I knew from childhood came to the reading and he said, I'm going to buy your book, but I'm not going to read it. like, at least he was honest okay. about it, right? I said, well, why aren't you going to read it? He said, I don't read books. I'm like, what? <laughs> it was How scary. could someone not read books? You know, this is like I would spend my whole day reading books if I could. Yeah. The idea that someone who was a college graduate, intelligent, successful, doesn't read books. What? That sounded so crazy to me. Yeah, he probably voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, but you know, this is something I hear more and more that people don't read books. And yes, you would expect that in certain demographics, right? I have a few I more. found it shocking. And that, yeah, that would be a whole nother direction. Yes, we shouldn't we'd go be there. Off. All, the Trump, all my many Trump listeners will immediately jump off right. this podcast. At any rate, I have a few more questions because I'm killing okay, you. I have here. another, so, say, 20 minutes. Okay. You're married. Yeah. Do you have kids? No kids. That's how you can be a writer. It helps. It, yeah, it really absolutely. does. It, it really does. Okay. Do you have an opinion on the live tour? And I know this is kind of a stock question these days, but I'm just curious. Well, I have an answer you haven't heard yet. I hate everyone involved on both sides. There okay. are no good guys in this argument. There is no yeah. one worth siding with. I mean, the PGA tour was a, you know, a strong man, an evil dictator for the last 40 years. The people who came along to unseat them are like the only people who should not have been involved in this at all. Like anybody else would have been okay. It was kind of like, I mean, you were going politics a minute ago. It was kind of like when the Democrats ran Hillary Clinton. Like 
Right. Anybody else could have won. I mean, anybody. That's right. But they picked right. the single worst prospect to take on this evil empire, and it failed. And so the live tour, you know, I mean, the money should really not even be anything we're discussing. The only thing we should be discussing is these people killed a journalist. That should not be countless others whose names we do not know, right? We'll um, never know. You know, that's that shouldn't be something that we have to like debate about whether that's okay or not. So, yeah. and the fact that it's you know rich people fighting against other rich people for even more money, like, do we really need that? I mean, I don't really care about either tour at all. The only thing that would trouble me is that you know if it undermines the majors, which have been a tradition in sports for so many decades and centuries. And, you know, the idea that some people might or might not be allowed to compete in them because, I don't know, the whole thing is just a mess and I don't like anyone. Yeah. Okay. Good. Oh, I'm glad I asked. I'm glad I asked. I had a, for a golf question at yeah. the end there just to make sure that this is a golf podcast. So what questions have I not asked you that you would like to answer? A point you'd like to make or- you were on a soapbox earlier on. You kind of you kind of surprised me at the beginning there. Where you, I asked you about your background. And you went into this rant. Yeah, about, I mean, I'm a I'm a cranky old man, and I apologize for that. That's why I like um, you. Actually, <laughs> you should be a Scott. Yeah, that's right true. I, actually, you know, the impetus for the book was the fact that when I was 50, my mother made reference to my Scottish heritage. Something, oh, that's right. That's something right. that I had never heard anyone mention ever. And at 50 years old, I took a DNA test. And it turns out my great grandfather was Scottish, which means I'm 12% Scottish. Wow. So, Congratulations. That's great. And that's why you're a crank. I mean, my grandparents, they were the biggest cranks in the world. I couldn't understand what they were saying because they were from Aberdeen. But yeah. um, but they're sweetly cranky. I mean, if, yeah. I mean, I'm cranky, cranky with good I mean, intentions. I like to. That's but, right. But I mean, that's what matters. That's the other thing. You know, the other thing about golf, and you know, I was just traveling with a group of journalists in Ireland, and we encountered a golf course that I thought was one of the worst golf courses I had encountered, maybe ever. And everybody was talking it up about how great it was because of... You're not going to mention it, are you? You're not going to mention it. I could it. mention it. That was going to be part of my point is everybody's so afraid of being political and expressing the wrong opinion. Like, I don't give a shit anymore, right? You know, I mean, I am who I am. I know who I am. On a thing like this, somebody hosts you, right? And you go out of your way to try to say nice things because someone's gone to the trouble of hosting you. But where that leads is a golf course that was virtually unplayable, is now ranked 55th in the world, number three in Ireland, and everybody is required to, on the record, to say all these great things about it, when, you know, I think a lot of the other journalists on this trip tended to agree that this was impossibly difficult and ridiculous and, you know, like, just shouldn't have been built in the way it was built, but... They're all in the business, and so they have to say nice things anyway. And so, what- it wasn't the Euro- it wasn't the European club. No, it? it wasn't the European club. Oh, good, because I really enjoyed oh, no, I like, it. And I got I to like meet the European club. Okay, but, I, but- I got to meet Pat Ruddy. Oh, He's yeah, a real yeah I met him there as well. He was uh, attending bar in the clubhouse. 
the day we were there. I, I love him. Yeah. I have a picture of him sticking his cane in my ear. I'll send it to you. At any rate, what this, what this gets at is that we cannot trust any of these ratings panels, any of these numbers. It's all political. People buy the influence to get on these lists. People who are raiders are not reliable sources in many cases, not in all cases, to be reviewing these courses and giving them a rating. I mean, this whole thing is a scam pulled over the eyes of golfers who rely on certain magazines or certain lists or certain panels to tell them where they should be playing. You saved this scandalous expose to the very end. I'm going to have to edit this and put it right up front. You should take the whole thing out. I'll deny saying any of it. Yeah, oh, yeah, because I don't have your... I just think, I, I it's keep the it. same with the live golf thing. Like, I think everybody is worried about expressing their opinion. And now we're at a... And now you're really going to get me off on the tear. We're at a time <laughs> in the world where people can't express their opinions because someone will be insulted or offended no matter what you say. And if you say something different, someone else will be offended. But nobody can really. So people are becoming afraid to express what their real opinions are. And they water everything down so as not to hurt anyone's feelings. And, you know, the fact is, if someone builds a terrible golf course, we should all be able to say that's a terrible golf course, even though somebody named it, you know, 55th in the world. Well, I will tell you. Just to separate myself from the pack who are afraid to express themselves, I live about 10 minutes from Bedminster, and every time I drive by the opening gate, I yell an obscenity, and I'm sure they have my license plate, I'm sure they have me on, on some kind of video, but uh, it makes me yeah, feel good. It makes me yell. feel good knowing that you're doing that. <laughs> okay. It's my public service. So where should people learn more about your books, buy your books, promote your books, so whatever? The clearinghouse for all of this would be my website, Jeff Wallach. Dot com. And rather than give you another rant about the publishing business, I'll just say books like this are generally not available in bookstores because of the economics of book selling. But you could go to a bookstore and ask them to order it. So if you have and I encourage people to buy their books from small independent bookstores whenever possible, because if we don't support them, uh, they won't be around anymore. And you know, I sell a lot of books on Amazon. People can buy it there and that's easy and I get it. And, you know, Amazon is good for writers, but so are independent bookstores where you can actually go and wander an aisle and accidentally come upon a book that you might not have otherwise ever seen. So yeah. jeffwallach.com and there's a link there to my publisher or they could get it on Amazon or they can buy them from their independent bookstores by asking them to be ordered. Okay. This has been great, Jeff. Yeah, I appreciate your time. I, I, with you. I, I, talk to you. I hope I've asked you some questions that you didn't get asked on any other podcast. <laughs> and I promise I'll do the Bill Murray thing. Whether or not I'm successful okay. is another matter. Yeah, well, let me know, let me know what our mutual friend says. Okay. Right. I will pleasure do that. talking with you, Gordon. Thanks so much. Same here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Golf Yeah, featuring another success story from the business side of golf. Maybe it's time to get more serious about making golf the center of your life, not just the highlight of your weekend. Head over to golfyad.com for more great content, including show notes, testimonials, and links to valuable resources. That's G-O-L-F-Y-E-A-H.com.